Hi folks, Ralph coming at you. Welcome to another episode of My Parents' Basement. Coincidentally, we are no longer in Lou's parents' basement or my parents' basement. We're in a different basement. A lot has happened since the last time I posted a, <laughs> one of these conversations. If you're interested in getting caught up on the day-to-day life adventures of Lou and I and the basements that we have <laughs> frequented, you can check it out on our channel, youtube.com slash Ralph and Lou. But today is focused on the podcast. Today is focused on a discussion with my doctor, Dr. Crawford, about concussion. It's been a long time coming. There was a lot of back and forth, just making sure the edits were okay, and that Dr. Crawford was comfortable with what I am sharing. So it's finally here. This is part two of the concussion discussion on prevention and management. I hope you find the information valuable. I hope you'll share it with somebody who might benefit from it. If you haven't listened to the first part of this podcast, I would encourage you to go check that out. You can find it on iTunes or SoundCloud under My Parents' Basement. And I'm going to leave it at that. If you guys are interested in supporting the podcast at all or buying us a coffee for our editing hours and our labor of love, then you can find a link in the description. It's coffee.com slash Ralph and Lou, which I think is fantastic. What a great world we live in that we can share a link there. People can buy you coffee for your work. So if you guys would be interested in contributing, basically right now I'm just trying to cover the cost of hosting for this podcast because I really want to share this information with people specifically around concussion. There are a couple podcasts coming down the pipeline in the future, so be sure to subscribe on iTunes. Thank you guys so much. Again, if you find this information helpful, valuable, I want to hear from you on the Twitter sphere at Ralph and Lou, uh, or share it. Please share it with a friend and let me know, okay? I love you guys. Thank you. And here is Dr. Crawford, part two on concussion prevention and management. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another podcast. I am back here with Dr. Crawford in his lovely kitchen, and he's been kind enough to have me back for a second conversation about concussion. If you haven't listened to the first conversation yet, I would recommend you check that out. We talked about concussion mechanism and diagnosis, and today we are talking about management and prevention, and uh, I'm excited to get into that conversation. So thank you again, Dr. Crawford, for having me in your lovely home. Well, thank you for coming. I was just thinking that since we're in the kitchen, we should be doing something on food preparation. <laughs> Maybe the next podcast. We next could talk- podcast, we could call it What's Cooking? What's Cooking yeah. with Dr. Crawford. Yeah, there you go. I like it. All right. So uh, let's jump right into to concussion management and prevention. In the last podcast, we talked about, you, you brought something up that I thought was really interesting. You said that at one point, uh, scientists believed that neurons were not replenishable. And there's been some research to show otherwise in the last few years. And I was wondering if you could elaborate on that in terms of neuroplasticity and, and what that is. Sure. Well, as, as I did say previously, way back in my formative years uh, studying biology, uh, we were told that uh, all the cells in the body eventually replenish themselves. The only two categories of cells that did not replenish were cardiac cells or heart cells, so if you suffered a major heart attack, you lost the cells that su- support the uh, function of the heart musculature. And the other uh, grouping of cells were neurons or nerve cells, so cells in the brain, or cells in the peripheral nervous system as well. These cells are not, uh, I guess, um, germane to uh, reproduction. Once they're dead, they're dead. Over the years, we find out that that's not necessarily true when it comes to brain cells. 
that the brain has the capacity to undergo what's referred to as neuroplasticity or, or the ability uh, to rewire itself and create new connections or what sci- scientists refer to as synapses through the cortex or the, the body of the brain tissue. And in fact, it's also been found that these new neuronal synapses may assume their previous roles or they may assume new roles. And it's quite exciting in the area of, uh, for instance, uh, stroke patients, um, where at one time, if someone suffered a stroke and they lost the use, let's say, of their right arm, well, that was uh, what they had. It, it was what it was, and nobody could do anything about it. Now we find through various the interventions and uh, rehabilitative techniques that stroke patients can, in fact, um, uh, recover some of the movement, if not all, of a, a limb that has been previously lost in terms of uh, motor and sensory functions. So we know that the nervous system has this capacity to rewire itself and that neurons can, in fact, be replenished, which is very exciting. Yeah, it's encouraging for anyone with a neurological disorder uh, for the potential of, that the brain can heal. Mm-hmm. So if we can re- rehabilitate our brains... How would someone with a concussion approach therapy? What should they look into? Okay, well, there are a variety of things that we have to consider with regard to concussion. And, um, you know, from our perspective, we, first of all, understand the, the, the injury itself as a chemical injury. I think we mentioned this in the first podcast mm-hmm. that, that the concussion itself is not a structural injury. It's not something that we can see. Uh, we typically refer to it as a neurometabolic cascade. There's a whole series of biochemical events that occur that create what we refer to as concussion because the brain has been shaken up. Interestingly, uh, with the advent of newer imaging techniques, everyone's familiar with the CT scan and an MRI. Mm-hmm. We have uh, a new type of MRI, functional MRI, which shows... Uh, Different areas of the brain will become engaged or light up, as we say, when certain tasks are presented. We also have something called diffusion tensor imaging, which is a type of MRI which specifically looks at uh, the white matter tracts in the brain. And we believe that we're now able to look at those areas, uh, those white matter tracts that have been destroyed as a result of concussive forces to the head and subsequently to the brain. They're still in the early stages of this, and and we really can't uh, discuss much about it, but uh, in experimental models in animals, they've certainly uh, been able to see that there are changes in the white matter tracts of the brain. So we know that there may be a structural component to the concussion itself. Okay. Okay, now, having said that, we also know that if you watch somebody go through space and time, uh, say as in a hard hit with a football tackle or a, a you know a check in in hockey, their body may be moving at a certain speed, and so is their head, so is their brain, mm-hmm. and when they come to an abrupt end, the brain collapses on itself inside the skull, as we've mentioned, and that linear or angular force that's created as a result of that impact has the capacity to tear uh, some of these um, uh, neuronal components, specifically the axon of these uh, neurons. And there are uh, artist renderings of these types of things in medical textbooks that suggest that this may be the problem. And I think, in fact, the uh, diffusion tensor imaging um, will help us to understand that level of um, 
of uh, mechanistic damage that occurs. When it comes to rehabilitation for the brain, one of the main things, and I think we discussed this in the last podcast, was rest is the most right, important ingredient. Right. And the, the capacity for your brain to just calm down and not have to go through all kinds of cognitive processes, sure. et cetera. But the other thing is that people have lost the capacity to maintain a proper horizon. So they feel dizzy. Right. Um, they're looking at the world in a different way. It's not being processed the way it should be. And uh, this whole thing that we're discussing now refers to what's called the vestibulo-ocular reflex or the V, that's V for Victor, O-R, which anyone can Google. It's a reflex eye movement in a direction opposite to the head movement, but stabilizes the image on the retina. So if you're looking at something and you turn your head left or right, you still have the capacity in the normal sense to see the image and the image doesn't move. So if you focus on a target, even though you turn your head left to right, it doesn't move. With a concussed individual, it's difficult to do that. When you take your head to the left, your eyes move to the left and then slowly glide back to the right to find the image you were looking at and vice versa when you go to the right. So the vestibulocular reflex is the specific eye movement reflex that we have to rehabilitate in some cases where a person has received a blow to the head and this has caused a disruption in the system. So the role of this VOR is to detect linear and angular head movements and know where the head is in space. But when you've been concussed, it's a completely different mechanism for you. The other thing that the vestibular system is responsible in doing is assisting in stabilizing or gazing at an object that's stable in your visual field. And as I said before, moving your head from side to side. This system also maintains balance and postural control and it provides spatial orientation or perception of body movement. So I tell patients when you're concussed, you have a hard time understanding where you are in space. Right. And it's got nothing to do with anything other than the fact that your vestibular system has been slightly altered. So what we have to do is get people back into a state of normalcy. And we do that by going through a variety of um, exercises that we teach them that they can do at home. So the overall goals of our rehabilitation program would be to optimize for compensation in the balance system and then to desensitize, or some people use the term habituate, your abnormal uh, vestibular responses to rapid movement. So you want to be used to that because that's what we do every day. Right. When you're driving your car down the street, things are happening rapidly. You just take them for granted and you go with the flow. But when you have a concussion, that's, it's difficult to follow rapid movements. And that's a whole other set of uh, problems. We want to make sure that the vestibular system is intact because we're trying to reduce the risk of falls. Yeah. Okay, so we talk about balance and postural control and the possibility that people can sustain a fall, which could then lead to other problems like a fracture or who knows what. Right. And uh, of course, uh, the, the ultimate goal is to educate the patient to make sure that they understand that what they're going through is likely temporary. It can be fixed. We just have to do uh, you know, the rehabilitative treatments and interventions to, to get them to for, see the, the end result of all of this. Right. Part of this, of course, is when the, the patient is able 
and we've gone through the necessary interventions and they're feeling better, then we would introduce physical exercise. So some aerobic exercise, because we want to make sure that, you know, they're not becoming deconditioned as a result of their injury. I would like to uh, address the topic of exercise because I think it's um, an important uh, concept that we're now starting to understand more about with regard to uh, concussion and um, and the, uh, the rehabilitation interventions that we suggest for treatment in this and management in this condition. Hmm. Yeah, and the, the one of the questions that that I've seen a lot is how long do I have to get brain rest? Like how long do I have to continue to rest, and when can I start doing some some physical exercise? And I guess we will we can talk about that a little bit later on. So the vestibular rehabilitation. Uh, is basically a series of of exercises and movements that that helps repair that system. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you how do you assess someone for this rehabilitation? Do you do you think it's a standard treatment that everyone with a concussion should go through, or do you go through a series of tests? How do you assess someone and say this is the procedure we should take you through for uh, VOR? Okay. VOR is just part of the rehab process. I mean, some people may require more extensive VOR rehabilitation. Other people might not require very much at all, if any. Mm -hmm. Um, I think the question is really, how do we assess for concussion? How do we even know we have a concussion? You know, um, I I think I might've mentioned this in my in my uh, first podcast with you as a child uh, or a younger person, I guess, in high school, I was injured playing football. I had a headache for three weeks and my doctor said to me at the time, well, that's football. And that's what we knew about concussion at that time. And we might've said, oh yeah, you've had a concussion and uh, you go home and you'll be fine. Just don't do anything for a couple of weeks and you'll be fine. Well, we know that that's really not the way to treat concussion. And it's really not the way to assess a concussion. In those days, it was probably based on your your history. What happened? I hit my head. Okay, you've probably had a concussion. Right. Uh, we have a little bit more sophistication yeah. now in the in the field. Uh, there are a number of tests, a variety of tests that are used for concussion assessment and management. Um, I can, uh, unfortunately, I can't hold them up and show your listening audience, but they're welcome to look these up online. The King Devic test. Devic is spelled D for Donald, E V for Victor, I C K. It's King Devic test. Uh, the SCAT-3, SCAT stands for Sport Concussion Assessment Tool. It's the third version. And the Rivermead uh, uh, Concussion Questionnaire. Th- these are all uh, standard tests that we can use. The King Devic is a, a, a test that's actually used by trainers now on the sideline. And it's an objective test uh, which r- will remove a person from play. They read a series of numbers from left to right on three different test cards. The examiner records the mistakes that they've made. The examiner also records the time it takes to do this. And presumably you've had what's called a baseline test or a test where you've conducted this on an individual who hasn't had any injury. And mm-hmm. we call that their baseline or what would right. be considered normal. And then they're in a game situation, they get hurt. And now we do the King Devic test and we see that their responses are much slower. They're making a lot of mistakes. We remove them from play. Right. I mean, you know, when I was a kid, I think I said this in my first podcast, they'd look at you and say, are you okay? Because if you don't want to play, we'll put somebody else in that will. 
and you'd say, no, I want to play. And the coach would say, well, get in there and shake it off. Yeah. You know, we don't, we don't shake it off anymore. Yeah. Yeah. It's a very serious. So it's important for, for anybody involved in sports to get a baseline test, would you say? I would imagine that this procedure or this practice rather is, is being followed by a number of sports related organizations, not through just in Canada, but through the United States as well. Mm -hmm. It's a, kind of the best measure we have of knowing where you were right. and where you are now and what your capacity is to get you to where you were. Right. If you don't have that luxury and you have an injury, you, have, you sustain a concussion, of course, we have what's called a post-injury one test, which is what most people write. And then that gives us an indication as to where you are. Yep. And then we work with you. And over the next couple of weeks or whatever, we, we retest you and, and see where you are now and, and try to improve your, your scores. A very simple way of uh, managing or at least uh, diagnosing and managing um, this issue of concussion is to do what's called a vestibulo-ocular motor screen, or we call it a VOMS test. And it's a series of little physical tests that you do um, with the patient uh, looking at their eye movements, and understanding a little bit more about their capacity to focus on a point coming in close to their eyes and further right. away, et cetera. And so it's just a quick screen that tells us that maybe they're not in the moment and they shouldn't be probably going back on the ice or they shouldn't right. be going back on the field. And then uh, later on, we can reassess them clinically and see where they are and if there's any improvement and, uh, and so on. We largely use what's called the IMPACT test. Uh, IMPACT is uh, an acronym that stands for Immediate Post-Concussion Assessment Test. You can look this up online. It was developed by Dr. Mark Lovell, who's a neuropsychologist, and, and his colleagues at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center. It's a computer-based assessment of neurocognitive function. It's not a pen and paper test or a pencil and paper test. It's not an IQ test. It's not an aptitude test. It right. just tells us all about your neurocognitive function and in particular, your visual motor speed and your reaction time because mm -hmm. that's really what we have to deal with with concussion. And we make a, a, a conclusion based on the um, composite evaluations uh, on your verbal memory, visual memory, your visual motor speed and your reaction time and we can compare this data. If it's a post-injury one, we don't have a baseline on you, but we do have your, your scores and we can compare your scores against the data of 10,000 people who wrote this test between the ages of 10 and 60. Right. And we can get a pretty good idea of where you are based on the normative data. Right. Okay. And uh, there are also... Uh, reliable change indices for each of those four things that I mentioned, the verbal memory, the visual memory, the visual motor speed, and the reaction time. And it tells us something about where you are now and how we can get you to be more in the normal population type of scenario. Right. If you had written the baseline test where you weren't injured, then you're injured and write the the post-injury one, we can compare your own scores to yourself. Right. right. And that would be... You know, ideal. The, the, the most ideal situation, right. absolutely. Because it's more personalized. Yeah. Okay. Now, I'm, I'm just thinking back to when I was taking the test and 
the impact test is the is the reaction time and verbal memory and motor skills and all that. Um, it's not the scale of symptoms. That's right. Um, that's a separate test. Well, that's it's part we incorporate that as a total symptom score in the impact test. That I think we discussed that in the first uh, um, yeah. podcast as well. It's called yeah. the post concussion symptom scale. Right. There PCSS, are twenty two. Yeah. yeah, there are twenty two. Uh, individual symptoms and we know that they're associated with concussions. So we ask you on the on the impact test, we ask you to rate them on a scale from zero to six, six being the most devastating, uh, you know, uh, for instance, headache is number one. So if you said, well, I have a five out of six, that tells us your headache is pretty severe. Yeah. Whereas if you say there's zero for vomiting, then you're, you don't vomit. We understand that. So we take your score, we add it up, and if you're nine or less, you're considered to be within the normal group. Right. We typically see uh, total symptom scores of you know, 60, 70, 90. I mean, they're, they're quite high. Mm-hmm. And we know we're dealing with a fairly acute, serious problem. But within a few weeks of treatment and so on, these scores can drop considerably. And it's one of the best measures I think I have anyway of understanding how patients are responding to the therapy. Right. Yeah. And specifically vestibular therapy in your case? Well, no, not, not just vestibular therapy. Vestibular uh, rehabilitation, we have another way of, of looking at that. What we're looking at with the impact test is strictly neurocognitive function. Okay, okay. okay. Yeah, yeah. This is, uh, so that's separate. So just to reiterate then, the, what uh, vestibular rehabilitation kind of addresses, it's, it's the balance and, and uh, spatial awareness and sort of the, the stabilized gaze. Exactly. Okay. So for someone who's having some of those issues, they should get in touch with someone who has some training in vestibular rehabilitation. Absolutely, yeah. Okay. Let's talk about the return to work, return to school, uh, play, et cetera. Mm-hmm. How long does someone need to rest? This is the question that I see all the time. Mm-hmm. How long does someone need to rest cognitively, physically, and when can they start returning to their normal activities? And when can they start kind of introducing some exercise? Yeah, it's an interesting and very contentious topic. Uh, we hear it all the time. Uh, we were asked it all the time, especially by uh, the kids that want to get back out to the hockey mm-hmm. arena and, you know, kids playing soccer, football, whatever it is. Pay, uh, parents are also anxious to know because sure. uh, they want to understand what are the long-term consequences of this? And the reality is we don't really know what the long-term consequences are. There's been a lot of uh, speculation, but uh, nobody really knows. There have been efforts to uh, develop guidelines around what we call return to learn, to go back to school or return to work or return to play. Uh, Those are the three major issues that people are always concerned about. Different organizations will have uh, a different uh, take on it. Can Child is a, a group out of McMaster University in Hamilton, Ontario. They, and I'm going to summarize this quickly, but they have three basic levels. The first level is if you have no symptoms at rest for a week, mm-hmm. then you can return to learn. Okay. And now you talk about cognitive exertion. So to think. You know, to do math problems, right. to do your spelling, to put together uh, sentences in a coherent manner. If you can do that without 
having symptoms. And what I mean by that is, and, and maybe some of the listeners will agree, when you've got a really bad headache, the last thing you need is to sit down and try to balance your bank book. Sure. Yeah. You can't concentrate, right? Yeah. So that's basically what happens to somebody if they're having cognitive impairment mm-hmm. and difficulty with uh, some of these uh, post-concussive symptoms like headache, for instance. They're not able to uh, comprehend at a, a high level. So why would you have that person go back to school? It just doesn't right. make sense. They yeah. need to rest. Sure. The third level would be physical exertion. Okay, we would never have a person uh, recover from no symptoms that rest for a week and then send them back to play without going to school first. I don't think there's a teacher right. in this country that would agree with that. So we wanna make sure that cognitively you're, you're well, and then you can move on to uh, introducing the physical component again. Right. So those are three levels. A more sophisticated approach uh, is one that Dr. Robert Cantu, who's a neurosurgeon out of the United States, he's established some guidelines for return to play. So we might loosely use his guidelines and establish them for return to learn, return to work, as well as return to play for people that are not NFL level players. So he grades consciousness on the levels of grade one, two, and three. And uh, based on whether or not an individual has sustained a loss of consciousness and for how long, as well as any post-traumatic amnesia and how long that period lasted and post-concussion signs and symptoms, from that information, uh, there's a determination as to when return to play can occur. So here's an example. If you have a person who has sustained a concussion or a head injury, Mm -hmm. but there's been no loss of consciousness, no amnesia of less than 30 minutes and no post-concussion signs and symptoms for 24 hours or less, and this is the first ever time they've been concussed or had a head injury, their return to play may be as early as one week, provided there are no signs and symptoms and they're completely asymptomatic at rest, okay? Whereas if you have someone with a loss of consciousness for greater than or equal to one minute with uh, post-traumatic amnesia lasting for greater than or equal to 24 hours, that means they don't remember how right. this happened or they don't remember the events you know, uh, since, the accident, uh, since the incident, whatever. And they continue to have post-concussion signs and symptoms for greater than or equal to seven days and this is only their first concussion, they may not be able to go back to play for a month. Right. If it's their second concussion, they may not play for the rest of the year. Right. Because we're starting to understand that it's important for the brain to completely recover before a second concussion has an opportunity yeah. to take hold. Yeah. Otherwise, the recovery is you know, anybody's guess. I mean, it's sure. just lengthened yep. and it could be quite dem- devastating as well. And that complicates the the return to work play process. Absolutely. So there's not really, as frustrating as it might be, there's not really an answer to someone who is still experiencing symptoms for <clears throat> months after yeah. uh, sustaining a concussion. There's no real way to say, you know, you can return to work, uh, learn and play after a certain period of time because they've kind of gone outside of the scale of that. Exactly, Jane. You know, as I said to you, uh, I think in our last podcast, every concussion is completely different. Mm-hmm. No two are the same and each individual will respond differently. So I think it's, it's important for someone who's had this injury 
to be assessed properly and then with the therapist they're working with, design a program that's suitable for them in terms of their return to learn, return to work, return to play. Right. And I'm, and I'm not suggesting that they have to sit out for long periods of time. Everybody is different. So you obviously, our, our goal is to get that person back to work, learn, play as soon as possible, but within the realm of safety sure. in mind. Because we've learned some tragic lessons and uh, over the years. Um, and so I think we, we have to understand that, again, it's a, an individual injury. And as long as we can promote health and safety during the process, then if the person can go back to work or school a little bit earlier, hey, that's fine. It's mm-hmm. not a problem. But we have to monitor those individuals. Sure. So on the topic of exercise then, I'm curious, one, how does it, influence someone who has a concussion and when should they start to incorporate some exercise back into their their program? I I guess you've kind of covered that a little bit with a return to work and play. But for someone who, I'd like to also talk about someone who has had lingering symptoms. Mm -hmm. How does someone who's had lingering concussion symptoms know when they can start incorporating exercise or should they start incorporating exercise and I'm, I'm sure a lot of this would be based on a personalized rehabilitation system that they go through with their, with their therapist or, or doctor. Mm-hmm. But if, if you wouldn't mind talking about that a little bit, that'd be helpful. Sure. And again, we're talking personalized injury, yeah. right? This yeah. is a real personalized situation. So to, to go back to some basics, just in terms of the pathophysiology of what happens with concussion, as I said earlier, it's more of a biochemical injury than it is a structural injury. So we, we talk in terms of the brain undergoing an energy crisis. The cells or the neurons change shape. They become more permeable. That means that things on the inside can leak out and things on the outside can leak in and there's a disruption in the normal ionic flux or flow, if you will. That's a toxic situation for the cell. There's a release of a neurotransmitter called glutamate. Um, That results in a significant energy demand and a period of crisis for the injured brain. And as I said, we we call that a neurometabolic crisis. Two interesting things happen. There's a requirement, an increased requirement for glucose by the brain. Glucose is the sugar that runs through our bodies after we ingest our meals and go through the process of digestion. And glucose is a very important um, fuel source for the brain. But for some reason in concussion, there's an increased demand. Um, We think we understand why that is. And at the same time, there's a decrease in blood flow through the brain. So that presents a clinical conundrum because if there's a decreased blood flow, how do you get the glucose to the brain? Right. One of the mechanisms that contributes to the alterations in cerebral blood flow and maybe contributes to the prolonged recovery after concussion may be the dysfunction of what's called the autonomic nervous system. And the autonomic nervous system has two divisions, the sympathetic and the parasympathetic. Right, okay. okay. So concussed patients have been found to have higher sympathetic nervous system output than controls. And we see this because they have higher resting heart rates and higher heart rates during cognitive, where they're just thinking, and physical exercise. So autonomic nervous system regulation and concussion recovery may be controlled by cerebral blood flow. 
Okay. So in other words, if we can increase blood flow, we may be able to support the better function of the autonomic nervous system. So exercise is considered to be helpful in promoting autonomic nervous system and concussion recovery. Exercise has been shown to increase parasympathetic nervous system activity, decrease sympathetic nervous system activity, and increase cerebral or brain blood flow. But the timing of adding the exercise as a therapeutic component is very critical here. So here's the situation. In animal studies, premature exercise, in other words, if they start getting the animals to exercise, run on their little wheels and that sort of thing, Mm -hmm. too early within the first week, let's say after injury, that results in cognitive impairment. And how they know that is because if they were trained to run through a maze and then they have experimentally induced a concussion and then they have them exercise too soon, they can't run through the maze like they did before. They can't remember what to do. This is how scientists are interpreting that. And we also see uh, a a reduced level of of, uh, important peptides, uh, chemicals that assist in nervous system recovery, such as brain-derived neurotropic factor. That's uh, another topic on its own. But, But certain things that are produced by the brain normally are now not produced at the levels that we require. Right. Now, alternatively, if you expose animals to aerobic exercise 14 to 21 days after injury, Mm -hmm. so two to three weeks later, they seem to have improved cognitive performance and higher levels of these neurotropic peptides are also um, evident as compared to mice that are, or, or rats that are just treated with rest. Right. So we know that exercise is an important component, but it can't be introduced too quickly. Sure. And physiologically now we understand why it can't be introduced too quickly. So a couple of weeks, three weeks after the injury, in rodents, it seems to work. Right. We don't know exactly what's happening with humans, but we suspect because we're all mammals, there's some kind of application here. And it's a question of when do we start to do that? It's key to know when do we introduce this to humans? We've got the rat and mice models worked out. Yeah. But what, what happens yeah. in humans, we're still looking at. Okay. Now, and I'm just going to mention that some authors have proposed that the energy crisis that I talk about earlier may enhance vulnerability subsequent to in, uh, brain injury. So some of those things are well known. For instance, if we have symptoms like migraine headache, and that's one of the things you'll see, or photophobia or phonophobia, that means photophobia means they're light sensitive, right. phonophobia, they're sound sensitive, okay. and migraine headaches. Why would they have this with concussion? It's because of that ionic flux that I talked about, where the potassium inside the cell leaks out and the sodium and the calcium leak in. Right. When that happens, it changes the chemistry of the brain. Okay. And so patients will come and say, I've got this terrible headache, I'm light sensitive. That's because we have to work to allow these systems to right themselves again. People who have this energy crisis, it's very important that you understand that people who have this energy crisis are now vulnerable to second, or we call second impact syndrome, uh, second to concussion. 
unless you have been able to resume normal brain function, in other words, at least for the first part, be symptom-free at rest, as we discussed earlier, and get a really good handle on the brain having recovered, if you were to have a second impact, as they call it, second impact syndrome, Mm -hmm. to the brain, the recovery is lengthened. And as I said earlier, the results, the outcome may be devastating. Yeah. So rest is so, so important. Impaired cognition and slow processing, slow reaction times, this may be an indication that the axons, those long portions of the neurons, have been torn or destroyed. And this is where diffusion tensor imaging may be helpful down the road to tell us that there are structural changes and the structural changes that. exactly mm. um, may may have something. So there, what I'm what I'm saying essentially is that what we see clinically pretty well can be described from a biochemical perspective to tell us why this is happening. So as you go through managing the patient and treating them, and their systems begin to repair, you see this clinically because their cognitive function improves. Right. They don't feel that their energy level is, is drained anymore. They feel more like themselves. Their headaches start to go away. There's no need for them to wear sunglasses anymore. Right. You know, and that, that's how we see clinically that things biochemically are being resolved. Right. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay, great. So exercise is an important factor at some point, but not in the acute stages. Exactly. And that's... Like as far as we know from the rodent population. Right. Okay. right. From what the rats tell us. What the rats tell us. <laughs> <laughs> so again, I, I think it's important to stress that it's a highly individualized scenario and, and it, should be, it should be addressed by someone who has experience and training in, in concussion management. And uh, I also wanted to touch on nutrition because you're, we, we talk about exercise and, and um, I've been really fascinated by the effects of nutrition personally uh, in, in my recovery. And I wanted to see what your thoughts were on nutrition. How important is it uh, to incorporate good nutrition? What sort, of, what sort of things should people who are dealing with a concussion look at in terms of nutrition? Um, what, what's your opinion on that? You know, first of all, I would say that good nutrition is important regardless of, mm-hmm. you know, um, an injury or a disease or whatever. I mean, you have to provide the essential building blocks for the, for the body. Uh, you need carbohydrates. You need a certain amount of good fats. Mm-hmm. You need protein. You know, without these elements, you're not healthy, period. So uh, setting concussion aside, let's just say that it's important to have a good diet and you have to do this on a daily basis. With regard to concussion specifically, it's not clear. One would think that because there's a glucose deficiency that occurs and an increased demand, hey, that's simple. I just need to eat more glucose. And in fact, that's not the case. Mm -hmm. It doesn't seem to improve anything in terms of uh, the concussed individual, just because they're uh, ingesting more glucose or glucose, right. um, you know, I mean, if someone tells you that we have a glucose impregnated product and this is the best thing for someone for, with concussion and you should eat more of it, there's no evidence to suggest that that's the case. Okay. What I recommend for patients, two things. Number one, I want you to eat regularly. Don't skip meals. I think it's important that when you've got an organ as sensitive as the brain that's trying to recover, it requires 
very careful attention. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we want to make sure you eat your meals regularly and we want to ensure that you provide protein with each of those meals and a good a substantial portion of protein. Now, you know, some people say that uh, a piece of steak or beef or a piece of chicken or fish the size of a deck of cards gives you the protein that you require for every meal. That's fine. Um, cottage cheese, uh, lentils. You want to make sure that you're getting enough protein in every serving because protein is going to uh, provide the amino acid building blocks that you require for restructuring, you know, right. for for rebuilding. And if there is damage, if there are torn axons, et cetera, et cetera, we need the, the necessary components to make uh, neuronal membrane and, uh, you know, all the, all the components that go with cells. Right. The other thing is water. Mm-hmm. You know, the brain itself is composed of about 80% water and it floats in a sea of cerebral spinal fluid. So the last thing we want to do is become dehydrated. Right. Um, I mean, the typical patient who doesn't have a concussion, who doesn't suffer from concussion, can suffer from headaches simply because they're dehydrated mm-hmm. and they haven't had enough fluid that day. And by fluid, I mean water. Your body understands water. It's something that we've have imbibed since we've walked the planet and it it understands what water does. And water is an extremely important component of normal health in every cell. Mm -hmm. Keep your cells well hydrated. I think that's extremely important because it provides the the aqueous environment in which biochemical reactions occur. So let's say that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So it is super important. And you're talking about with the with the brain resting and and eating regular meals there seems to be like an element of of ritual or habit that is kind of beneficial as well and and i i noticed this in the sleep hygiene aspect of things um, when i was going through your program and it was important to go to bed at the same time every day and wake up at the same time every day in order to reset that sleep schedule and again eat the meals at the same time every day. And there's a certain element of, of routine that seems beneficial. Is that something that you would agree with? Well, I would agree with that anyway. People skip their breakfast. They yeah. don't have lunch and then they eat a big meal at, when they come home yeah. at night. And then they still go and get some snacks before bed. You know, that, that plays havoc with the, the insulin system. Right. I mean, the, the goal is to maintain a nice even level of insulin throughout the, the 24-hour period. So I think that um, uh, to maintain a schedule of meals would be very beneficial because you're going to maintain proper digestion through the, the day yeah. uh, as you're taking out from what you eat and storing what you require, using what you require. I think that's all important to maintain a, a, a sense of normalcy mm-hmm. or as you say, routine for the brain. Mm-hmm. Perfect. Because yeah. the, the issue of going to bed at night at a, a particular time, waking up in the morning at a particular time and doing that consistently uh, will help to maintain the brain's clock. Yeah, Maybe we need to also maintain the digestive system's clock as well mm-hmm. to support the brain when it requires uh, energy to... Um, and get itself back to normal. So yeah, I would absolutely agree with that. Yeah, one of the reasons I bring that up is because I know that a lot of people who have suffered a concussion will have that energy deficiency and they'll you, you kind of just want to stay in bed mm-hmm. uh, some days. You want to just kind of sleep in or maybe maybe you're feeling rather low and, and a bowl of ice cream would 
boost your mood. <laughs> but the importance of being habitual and staying on a routine and creating some normalcy is, is also an important thing, I think. Yeah, I think um, that's true. And I think it's true of exercise. If you're a person who follows a routine every morning, you get up, you do your, your weight workout or you go for your run or whatever it is, and you come back and you eat substantial breakfast, you know, with all the necessary ingredients. And then you try to follow that through at lunch and at supper. And I I think those are the people we see that have the glow about them. And it's true. The more you exercise, the more energy you have. All right. So we've talked about exercise. We've talked about nutrition. We've talked about return to play. Let's talk about predictors for concussion. Are there certain predictors for uh, the length of recovery and an interesting topic that, that came up in one of our conversations before was gender bias and some data on that. Would, do you want to talk about that? You know, you're asking, are there any predictors that would forecast the, the possibility of concussion? Or is your question more along the lines of what predictors are there that would um, suggest that a person might have a concussion? Yeah, I think I think we should maybe we could address both of those questions. Are there are there predictors in people who um, sustain um, a trauma, whether it's to the head or body, like we talked about before, that are more likely to receive a concussion? And then are there are there people with certain predictors that are more likely to take longer to heal from a concussion? Okay. To answer your first question, I don't believe there are any predictors in that regard. But what we are now understanding from the field of genetics is that there are certain genes, there's a certain gene in particular, that would predict your ability to recover from a concussion better or not so well. Okay. Okay. So this gene is referred to as the APOE4. The, the uh, importance of the gene is that if you possess this gene, there's a very strong possibility that if you were to undergo some sort of neural trauma or brain injury, um, the outcome for you might not be that great. Right. You might not recover completely. But as I say, this is all new. This right. is fairly new stuff. And most of what... Uh, they've done, of course, is in the rodent population once again. So how you take that and then apply it to the human condition, mm-hmm. I, I, I don't know where that stands at this point. But there's some suggestion because these particular genes are seen in, in patients who have CTE, the APOE3 and 4, and also in Alzheimer's disease. Mm. CTE is the chronic traumatic encephalopathy. When we talk about gender, the influence of estrogen may play a role. Some authors will say that females have a better recovery. Other authors say they don't. Okay. There is no difference. However, um, it's been shown that in the rodent model again, female rodents seem to have better outcomes uh, after a neural injury because they are able to increase their production of these neurotropins that we talked about, the brain-derived neurotropic factors and so on. Okay. And also they show a decrease in the amount of inflammation in the neural tissues oh. as opposed to male rodents. And if you subject them to motor tasks, they do better. 
the better performance. We know that in humans, if you have a, a mild traumatic brain injury in females, it reduces what's called estradiol in the cerebral spinal fluid. And the reduction of that particular component may have unique long-term effects because it's not yet known if this is a transient or a permanent condition. The limited amount of data regarding women with TBI has, of course, restricted the comparison between the genders because most of what we hear has to do with males, you know, the male football players, the male hockey players, and so on. Does it occur in females? Absolutely. But we have seemingly have more data on the male side than right. we do on the female side. There was also a suggestion that depending on when during their menstrual cycle a woman is concussed will depend on their outcome. Hmm. So when estrogen is much higher, it seems to have a more of a protective effect. Okay. And they've tried to do hormone replacement type therapy studies in mice that have been genetically uh, prepared so that their capacity for estrogen or whatever is lower when they uh, experimentally induce a concussion in these mice and then treat them with uh, the estrogen to replace what's missing. They seem to do much better. Hmm. So... (laughs) It's still very contentious. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I can't say that females will definitely do better than right. males. We don't know that. But um, some of the literature tells us that, you know, if you have a specific gene, uh, that may dictate overall performance in terms of your recovery. Okay. But that's highly speculative right, right now, sure. and it's, it's all new stuff. Okay, so you mentioned CTE earlier, and I think we touched on it a little bit in the first podcast, but do you want to talk about... CTE, again, what it is and what causes it? Sure. Okay. Well, CTE is the uh, short term for chronic traumatic encephalopathy. And it's what is referred to as a neurodegenerative disease. That means that the nerve cells actually undergo degeneration and they are dying. And the onset of those symptoms that you see clinically may lag years behind the event that caused it in the first place. So it's believed to be caused by repetitive head trauma and therefore trauma to the brain. Mm -hmm. The term was first coined uh, by Dr. Bennett Omalu, who, if you saw the movie Concussion, was played by Will Smith. Uh, Bennett Omalu was a pathologist who came from Africa, and he knew nothing about uh, North American football. And he just walked in one day and was told that he was doing an autopsy on a patient and... um, The patient's name was Mike Webster, and that meant nothing to him. And he didn't know Mike Webster was the famous Iron Mike from the NFL, the Pittsburgh Steelers uh, Center. And uh, he he conducted his autopsy, and as the story goes, subsequently he began examining the brain and uh, saw all of these uh, uh, alterations in the brain, which were very similar to Alzheimer's disease and couldn't understand Mm -hmm. why someone at such a young age would have the brain of a a man who you would suspect would have Alzheimer's disease at like 75 or, you know, older years of age. Why was this happening to such a young person? Mm -hmm. So he started doing some investigation and we we look through the literature and we find out that in 1928, uh, there was a man called Martland who described neurological changes in, in boxers after repeated blows to the head. He said, you know, they were confused, they had tremors, they had slow speech, they had gait disturbances, 
like all the sorts of things that you would associate with brain function. Mm -hmm. And this was in boxers. So in 37, there was a guy named Millsbaugh and he introduced the term dementia pugilistica, which basically is like Alzheimer's disease, a type of dementia. But here we've got dementia pugilistica. That means it's being created by fighting, right? If you're a pugnacious person, you're a fighting type of person. So that's where the word comes from. And uh, later on, it was described as psychopathic deterioration of pugilists, whatever. But punch drunk syndrome was sort of like the common and and sort of like the stereotypic boxer, you know, who has that sort of type of uh, speech pattern and and, uh, you know, they're, they're a little bit slower or whatever, but they know how to fight. You know, yeah. everything's about that. So these areas of the brain that are damaged were well documented. Uh, we won't go through them all for the, the listeners, but uh, from a pathological perspective, they're quite well documented. And, and we see this uh, disorder in boxers. It's also seen now in other sports because of what uh, Bennett Omalu sort of uncovered. You see it in North American footballers. You see it in wrestlers, hockey players. And uh, it's also described in non-athletes who suffer from repetitive brain trauma, like uh, blast victims. Mm. You could see this in people who are in war-torn parts of the world. A recent study found that uh, former athletes with a history of repetitive concussion experiences uh, uh, had memory-related issues at a rate of five times higher than those without a history of concussion. So we know that it affects some of the higher functions, memory and, and so forth. It's similar to Alzheimer's disease, except it occurs in people who are much younger than the typical uh, Alzheimer's patients, as, as I mentioned. What happens is and the mechanism is still being worked out, but there's an accumulation of a protein called tau protein. This builds up in nerve cells in the brain. This accumulation causes a variety of changes in function of the brain. As we were saying earlier, the development of the condition seems to be worse in people who have this APOE4 gene Both of the uh, APOE4 and APOE3 genes uh, have been implicated in the development of chronic traumatic encephalopathy as well as Alzheimer's disease, as I mentioned earlier. And uh, we don't know how, but the presence of this gene, if you happen to possess it, actually worsens the outcome of uh, mild traumatic brain injury or concussion. And we think it might have something to do with cholesterol metabolism in the body. I mean, there are other proposed factors, but this is one, one example is cholesterol. There are other things that may be involved as well. Uh, we, as I was saying when we talked about gender before, um, who knows what the effect of estrogen is in, in uh, female patients with CTE. I, I don't even know if anybody uh, has ever characterized the condition of CTE in a female patient. Okay, so it, it's, it's uh, something that results in from multiple or repetitive head trauma. Is, is this something that, you, that, that anybody with multiple concussions is at risk of? Or? Well, okay. We think that repetitive head injury results in CTE. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I don't think there's been a conclusive study to show that. And this is why members of the NHL and the NFL are saying, well, we don't believe that repetitive head injury causes these problems in our athletes. And right. maybe they're right. Um, no one has shown 
definitively that it does. Right. But in every footballer or NHLer that has been, as far as I'm aware, that has been uh, autopsied and their brains examined, uh, you find evidence of chronic traumatic encephalopathy. Wow. So does it happen as a result of repetitive head trauma? Probably, but is it conclusive? No. That's the way I'd have to answer that. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, I mean, it would suggest to me that if you're getting hit on the head, I mean, what did they say about Mike Webster? He probably received 70,000 blows to his head in his his NFL career. And that's probably, I mean, he he didn't miss six years of offensive plays or something. He was on every play for six straight years. And, you know, it's... It's interesting because that doesn't include all of the time when he started playing ball when he was a young boy and all through grade school and high school and college. Right, right. That's just his professional career. Yeah. And my wife said to me one night <laughs> we were watching a football game together and she said, every time they snap the ball, those guys on the front lines, they bang heads. Yeah. And I said, yeah, they do. And she said, well, how come they don't have concussions? And I said, well, we don't know that they don't. Right. I mean, yeah. we talk about subclinical concussion okay. and maybe those little blows over time accumulate and then you get the one straw that breaks the camel's back and right. down you go. And now you have a full-blown concussion. So mm. we don't really know what the, the effects are. No one has volunteered to say, well, hit me on the head so many times and then <laughs> yeah. you can figure it out, you know? Yeah. So we don't know where we are there. And this is really important um, when, when we look at the whole issue of... Um, the risk of more damage mm-hmm. with multiple concussions. You know, you would ask me one at one point, you said, is there an increased risk of more damage with multiple concussions when we were just talking here? And the answer to that is there is now a reasonable body of knowledge that clearly demonstrates that a concussed brain and its cells undergoes a peculiar state of vulnerability during a time when... Uh, if they should sustain a second injury, a second blow, um, and, and even a non-lethal blow, we'll call it, okay, in a short time frame from the first, then the cells will suffer irreversible damage and they'll die. Hmm. So that's why I was saying earlier that if you haven't completely recovered from your first concussion yeah. and you should sustain a second one, the results could be quite devastating. So if two of these mild traumatic brain injury type uh, situations occur in close proximity, the effect would be that of a single severe injury. So the key biochemical injury of the vulnerable brain lies in the incomplete resolution of the reversible energetic crisis. So triggered by the first injury. So the thing is, you have to make sure, but how do you do that? We don't know. Hmm. How do you know that the person is completely recovered other than to say okay, I have no symptoms at rest and it's been going on like this for a while. And then we start to cognitively exert you and we and then physically exert you and we, we presume that, okay, you're ready to go back. But as one author states, the metabolic effects of two concussions can be dangerously additive and we don't know how long the period of brain vulnerability will last and when the second concussion will be uneventful. Right. Okay. So yeah. what we're saying is we get the one concussion, we recover. <clears throat> mm-hmm. Fine. Everything's done. Now we move on and we're playing again and we get another concussion. Right. But because the first one is no longer there and the effects of it are gone, the second one is essentially like having 
just a normal concussion. Right. But we don't know for a fact that the first one is completely recovered. Right. I mean, how do we right. know that? Yeah. So this is, you know, really the issue for coaches and trainers and players. So that just shows that it's really important to follow that return to work and play um, as best you can. As best you can. As best yeah. you can. And I mean, yeah. as we said, it's tailored per individual. Right. Uh, each concussion is specific per individual. Mm-hmm. So I can't say that one size fits all. Yeah. And right. And For it's sure. all going to be based on what you tell me and what I see clinically and how you've been able to manage yourself over the course of X number of days subsequent to treatment and discharge and so mm-hmm. on. Mm-hmm. Okay. Wow. Uh, we've covered so much. One of the last questions I have here is uh, what is Rowan's law? Uh, Rowan Stringer was a 17 year old female high school rugby player in Ottawa. Mm-hmm. And, um, during the week of, I guess there were rugby championships or something going on, but during that week in 2013 in May, she sustained two concussions, one right after the other. And as I understand it, she was so anxious to play and she was a real team person and uh, she had very close friends and she asked everybody, please don't tell my parents, don't tell the coach, I want to play, this is really important. Right. So after the first concussion, of course, she sustained a second concussion. And on May 12th of 2013, she passed away. Hmm. And she died of what's called second impact syndrome. And as I was saying earlier, when you have a second concussion, it's more severe. It's more damaging. It causes a rapid, severe, and often fatal brain swelling. Hmm. And as I understood it, uh, rather than just let it go, the parents wanted to do more in terms of um, uh, supporting, I guess, this whole issue of concussion. And somehow or another, they made contact with um, a neurosurgeon in Toronto, Dr. Charles Tater, who's a specialist in this field. And I think he encouraged them to pursue an inquest of some sort. So an inquest was held in 2015 and... Subsequent to that inquest, and a number of recommendations were made, and a law was passed in Ontario in 2015. It made us the first province in Canada with legislation related to concussion and concussion awareness. And the law acts to govern the management of a youth concussion in sport. So um, this particular law was um, passed by all parties, all levels of government, and an advisory committee is going to be established uh, to aid in implementing the uh, inquest recommendations to improve uh, education and concussion awareness. And some of these uh, recommendations included, you know, uh, to ensure that a child is removed from play if a concussion is suspected and does not return without medical clearance. So we wouldn't have that scenario like I had when I was right. a youngster. No you more know, shake it off. Just go in there yeah. and shake it off. You'll be fine. <laughs> and that's not going to happen yeah. anymore. Uh, concussion awareness would be included as part of the Ontario school curriculum. So kids are aware now. Yeah. And they have the right to be able to say to their coach or their trainer, I don't feel good. Yeah. I don't want to play. You can't, you can't make me play. I need to sit this one out. Mm-hmm. I mean, what kid wants to sit out? Everybody wants to play, sure. right? So when a kid tells you that, you have to pay attention. Yeah. There's something going on there. Yeah. They want to have a, an annual uh, brain day awareness uh, sort of thing, concussion policies and place for sports organizations and school boards across Ontario. 
And I'm not sure about this, but I think some of these uh, recommendations, if not all, were adopted by other provinces in Canada. And this law may be um, universal now across the, across the board. I'm not sure of that. I know that it does exist in Ontario. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's a real push to um, implement some of these 49 recommendations so that we're all more cognizant of what goes on with, with the, in the field or the area of concussion. So yeah, that, that, that really drives home the point that it's important to rest and follow the return to learn work and play right under the supervision of a of a a professional someone who has some proper training and uh we've covered a lot in these two conversations and i think i think that is a an excellent spot to end off this second conversation on uh concussion management and prevention is there anything else you want to talk about before we uh before we end this conversation no, I just think it's wonderful that you're doing this, uh, AJ, because I think people have to become aware. Um, I've tried my best to uh, take it from a, a clinical, scientific-based you know, language. Most people, if not everyone, understands what we've been discussing because this is really an important area. Mm-hmm. I mean, today, I don't know uh, how my parents were, would have probably treated things way differently if they knew then what we know now. Um, you know, uh, how do parents feel when they hear this? How do mothers and fathers feel when their their youngsters come home and say, hey, I want to play football this year. I'm going to try out for the school team or I want to play hockey. You know, uh, I love watching football. I've played it my whole life. I played hockey my whole life and I, I still play baseball, you know, and we still have minor injuries that occur even at our level of play. So I'm a huge sports guy, no problem that way. But sometimes I wonder, you know, all the headaches that I had going through university right. and how much of that was part of what I sustained, uh, you know, as a young athlete. Mm-hmm. Maybe nothing, n- maybe nothing at all. Maybe my headaches were a result of all the reports and assignments that I had to <laughs> hand in in the lab notes and whatever. But I still think that for many years, uh, you know, I, I suffered with some of those injuries and I've uh, now having studied this material and, and being involved with it for the past four and a half years, I'm thinking to myself, you know, I wonder how much of that uh, that I experienced in school was still remnants of what happened to me in high school and parts of university. Yeah. So um, I think just to be aware is extremely important. I think parents should develop, you know, see their school uh, coaches, football, uh, hockey, whatever, see the coaches, see the trainers, talk to the soccer coaches and trainers. We see this in... Um, uh, synchronized swimming. I've had a young lady in synchronized swimming who's had a concussion as a result of thing. So it's not it's not specifically germane to football or hockey. Yeah. I, I would like to make that very yeah. clear. I mean, I don't know. You might get this in table tennis if you <laughs> sure. slip and hit your head on the yeah. edge of the table. But the point is, it, it exists. We see it in household accidents. We see it in industrial accidents, uh, motor vehicle accidents. So I think it's a, a topic of discussion today. I think parents should be very aware of it and listen to your children. If your children are saying, I'm not seeing the world correctly, uh, something's off balance, I've got a headache today, my tummy's bothering me. Ask them, what did you do yesterday? What was happening at school? You know, yeah. uh, Kids often trip and fall downstairs and they get up and walk away and they don't think of saying anything to their mom and dad because they're okay. Mm-hmm. They feel fine, right? Uh, or they had an altercation with another student who pushed them against the wall and kids are kids and they do what they do, but they don't come home and report that. Right. 
unless they're really feeling sick. So I think it's important for parents just to be aware Mm-hmm. And know what's going on with you. How was your day today? And uh, tell me, did anything happen? How are you feeling? Right. Et cetera. Communication. Communication is huge. I think education is huge. And I think this is wonderful what you're doing because this will really highlight a lot of really important issues. Well, I, again, I appreciate your time so much. And I learn a lot every time we have a conversation. It's always fun. And I really hope that the people listening will find you know, some information in here that, that helps them either prevent uh, concussion or helps them get on the right track for recovery. Cause I know there are some people who will be listening who are uh, dealing with ongoing symptoms. So again, thank you so much for having me in your awesome house and uh, sipping some green tea and having a great conversation about concussion. And I hope we can get together again at some point for more conversations about anytime about, uh, all of these fun things. So again, thank you so much. And uh, I will provide some links in the show notes for all the listeners um, for some of the things that we've talked about today. So if you want to do any further research and I'll also put in there um, a way to contact me for questions or um, anything that you would like me to forward on to Dr. Crawford. So thank you guys for listening and we'll see you next week.